You guessed it, it's the Bible Geek, and I am his geekiness, Robert M. Price. You know, not only a Bible Geek, I'm also the Lovecraft Geek, and have a, a scarcely ever heard a podcast on that, the Lovecraft Geek. Don't get as much traffic on that one, not as many questions, though. I'll try to come up with one soon. Now, um... I'm also the author of a bunch of stuff. I think most of you know that, but I'd just like to shamelessly plug a couple of things. Uh, to be on the lookout for, I have uh, three books at a couple of different publishers that are not out yet, but uh, will be in the next months. So I, I don't really know specifically um, when, but uh, one of them is called Judaizing Jesus, where I take issue with a scholarly consensus that... Uh, study of the historical Jesus must start from the axiom that uh, he was a Torah-observant Jew. I'm uh, not so sure of that. Not the the, the ethnic question, but uh, whether he was uh, a faithful uh, rabbinic observer or some kind of sectarian or much further afield. I get into various alternative theories uh, and and take up quite a bit of the book with those as well. But So Judaizing Jesus, uh, uh, subtitled Building the Ecumenical Golem. That's coming out from Touchstone, I'm sorry, Pitchstone Books, uh, as is another one called Merely Christianity, which uh, often uh, deals with uh, C.S. Lewis's apologetics, but with uh, really with a whole range of basic Christian doctrines, uh, trying to explain them, where they came from, and sorry, how they don't ultimately make sense, uh, that the notion of faith in a divine mystery is really a kind of a smokescreen for theories ill thought out and impossible to grasp. Um, and I, I know that that sounds worse than it is, but my premise in a book like that is to say, what if you can't really understand something unless you criticize it? And by criticize, I don't mean hurling abuse. I mean being willing to deconstruct it, to take it apart, see how it works, and therefore, if it works, rather than harmonizing and being deductive. Well, it has to be true, so don't don't care for that approach. Uh, that is also uh, from Pitchstone, and um, a third one, uh, that I just sent off is, um, uh, oh boy, I can never get the initials right. I think it's GRCC, um, publishing and it's, uh, it's called, uh, when gospels collide contradictions as revelations. And, uh, in that I try to show how, uh, wrong harmonistic exegesis is, uh, the weird things that happen to the text of the Bible when you try to iron out inconsistencies and contradictions and why it's such a shame when you do it, because you're really muting the Bible there. Uh, when you do that, you're refusing to see what you don't want to see in the Bible and substituting some kind of sophistry for it. Oh, well, well it uh, really must mean so-and-so. Come on. And my premise there is that uh, if you want to be a lover of the Bible, uh, you uh, need to brace yourself and be willing to hear what it's saying to you. 
media, and then you can make your decisions based on that. But I try to show that in a way, critical uh, explanations of uh, biblical contradictions, etc., are harmonizations in in the sense that uh, they show that uh, these these passages in the Bible aren't just the result of uh, scribal stupidity and that the gospel writers didn't know what the heck they were doing. Uh, no, they they certainly did, and you can show that. You can see why different points are being made and how. Well, all of that kind of uh, dovetails with my general explanation of what the heck the Bible geek is all about, because I think you could tell if you've listened to very many of them that the goal here is to further and facilitate the understanding of the Bible uh, through the use of historical criticism and literary criticism. Uh, it, it That does involve debunking a lot of popular misconceptions about the Bible that are offered as if a favor to the Bible and its authors, but in fact uh, it does a disservice to them. Uh, I don't uh, promote any particular religion or argue uh, that any particular religion is bad. I don't seek to change anybody's minds on the Bible geek. Rather, the point of it is Socratic, uh, to raise certain questions uh, to uh, enable you to explore uh, these things further, perhaps with knowledge, with skills, with methodologies that they didn't teach in church. Uh, that uh, you can use to increase your understanding of the Bible if you're curious about it. We don't even advocate that you should like the Bible or study it. It just so happens that that I do, just like with Lovecraft. You know, I'm not an evangelist for that either. Uh, but uh, if you're interested in it, as I am, you want to get to the bottom of it, and that's what uh, the Bible Geek is designed to do and to help you do. So um, I hope that uh, that helps sum it up. Everyone is is welcome uh, here, believer or non-believer, believer in Christianity or or believer in something else. Doesn't matter. Uh, we're everybody is welcome, and we uh, just want to. Uh, stimulate dialogue and provide uh, resources that you might not have otherwise. So, all right. Let's start out with uh, one from Dr. Barton. He says, on the Bible Geek Listener Facebook page, Matt Thompson mentioned the book Apparitions of Jesus, The Resurrection as a Ghost Story by Robert Connor. He mentions Connor's speculation that Herod believed that Jesus raised John the Baptist from the dead and used him as a being of power, dunamis, uh, to perform his miracles. Since I made some speculation, I think, a while back, that the head-on-a-silver-platter incident might be an adaptation of a non-Jewish, that we know of, divination ritual, I looked into this a little I haven't read Connor's speculation, so I may be going over some of the same ground. First of all, I noticed some ways that I would translate Mark 6.14 a little differently. Uh, and heard this, King Herod, openly for his name slash authority, became manifest, and he said, Because John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and by this 
operates slash works this power, uh, dunamis, in him. Please check and see if my understanding is at least possible. Note that we cannot be sure that Herod is speaking of Jesus or John the Baptist uh, at this point. He could be trying to explain Jesus' power, as per Connor. Uh, But Herod again spoke of John the Baptist rising from the dead with no mention of Jesus in chapter 6, verse 16. It therefore seems to be Herod's response uh, to stories of a being of power appearing here and there in the Israel-slash-Judea area. Indeed, 6.15 follows with the speculation that this being is Elijah, a presumably known prophet or some new prophet. Thus, I am going to scroll down, uh, suggest that that it doesn't refer to Jesus as a sorcerer, but to Jesus or several people in a movement manifesting the celestial Christ to participants in a Pentecostal-like movement, as per Stephen Davies. Uh, His book, uh, Spirit, Possession, and Early Christianity, something like that. Also, Jesus the Healer, he speaks uh, of that, that, you know, why is, uh, why does Jesus sound so darn different in the Gospel of John than he does in the Synoptics? Well, that's because in John he is functioning as a channeler uh, for the Christ Spirit, uh, whereas in the Synoptics he's telling you what he, he as a sage thinks. I don't quite buy that, but fascinating and worth uh, checking out, just like everything Stephen Davies writes. Hey, this actually fits in well with the polymorphic star Christ that appears in a few places in the New Testament, uh, which is why no one recognizes, recognizes Jesus on first meeting him. Uh, in the Revelation of the Magi, for instance, in Ignatius of Antioch's Star Hymn, and in the Greek magical papyri, this Jesus was a purely celestial being manifesting on earth in whatever form the participant could perceive him, and it was certainly a being of power. Uh, by the way, Origen says that, that not only in the resurrection, but even during his earthly sojourn, Jesus uh, appeared differently to different people depending on their spiritual capacity. The Acts of John has something similar about that. Okay, so while Connor could be correct that Herod thought Jesus was using a being of power as a source of power, I think it is much more uh, likely the other uh, was around uh, that I'm missing a word or two here. I think that the celestial Christ was using Jesus as an earthly conduit, at least in terms of the story. One very important observation about this passage is the common thread through all of the suspects of of being the being of power. They were all risen from the dead. This suggests that the risen Messiah was in the Jewish mindset even before Jesus' time. Maybe it's my fuzzy brain, but I don't remember that aspect in any temple or Enochian Jewish literature. It sounds like something from Margaret Barker's Royal Judaism, you know, the sacred king ideology, but I don't remember it from there either. If anyone knows of such a reference to it, then could you please mention them at the end of this letter? Uh, 
am I uh, at the end of this one? Oh, let's see. Let me do some scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Ah, uh, yes, that is the end of this one. Well, I sort of think you're over-interpreting the, the story, Doc. Uh, it, it seems to me uh, there, that there is no difficulty with the traditional view that Herod is saying, who the heck is this? Uh, it's, uh, I hear it's John the Baptist, though I killed him, uh, but is he risen from the dead and, and empowered with these divine abilities because he's risen from the dead? Uh, other people think it's Elijah, uh, who rose to heaven. Uh, he didn't die and, and come back. He never, never died and therefore was available in heaven to come back. Uh, it's, uh, it, not necessarily one of the prophets because we don't hear about uh, Jeremiah and Hosea and these guys pulling off miracles. Uh, it seems to me that uh, he is talking about Jesus and John the Baptist, right? He's saying that this guy whom the reader knows to be Jesus, and at least, you know, the narrator tells us that, uh, is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Like, Herod doesn't know who it is, and his, his guess is, uh, his guilty conscience is telling him, <laughs> I suppose this is Jesus. This Jesus is John the Baptist, who I executed, and that didn't uh, keep him down. Maybe he's headed for me. Uh, so I have to admit, I really don't see any uh, need to resort to a more complex. A model that is only really hinted at in, in some sources. I mean, Ignatius of Antioch certainly doesn't uh, uh, explain all of this when he makes the reference to the star of Bethlehem and so on. So I, I think maybe you're reading a bit too much into it. I, I would repair to such a thing um, only if the um, seeming apparent sense of it in the narrator just didn't make sense, didn't compute, but it does, I think. Okay, now this is uh, Jacob, presumably not the ancient patriarch. Maybe he's risen from the dead, too. Okay, he says, I've always enjoyed your impressions, so if you don't mind, I'd like to request one. I'm writing from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and we have a pretty plain Michigan accent with its nasalized vowels and dropping G's in the I-N-G ending. Uh... However, I've noticed that people who grew up on the west side of Michigan um, sometimes have an accent more akin to Chicago or Wisconsin. Uh, there is also the Uper, you know, the Upper Peninsula uh, accent, uh, which is uh, almost Canadian, eh? Your choice. Well, I can't do them well enough that you could tell the difference between uh, my attempts. But anyway, uh, during the pandemic, don't, pandemic, don't you know, I finally picked up your pre-Nicene New Testament. It has been probably 15 years since I'd read the New Testament, and it has been enjoyable and illuminating to reread it with your commentary. The organization of the volume also helps contextualize a lot of the writings, eh? 
certainly an improvement on the canonical list. I'm wondering what your translation philosophy was for it. The reason I ask is that I was laughing at some verse or other of First Timothy that I'm pretty sure wasn't supposed to be funny, but it had a turn of phrase that seemed to be classic Robert Price. Uh, well, let me pause there. I have this weird uh, limping translation philosophy uh, hopping from one foot to the other because I have two goals I'm pursuing simultaneously. I'm trying on the one hand to convey the literal reading of it when I can because sometimes that's striking and uh, and if you want to be as accurate as possible, uh, that's the thing to do. Like the... the uh, uh, what is it, the epic preterist? Is that what it's called? When when you have uh, uh, the action narrated in present tense suddenly, whereas most of it is in past tense. And, and apparently that is uh, a technique for added narrative vividness. Uh, which, you know, this shouldn't sound strange to us. We do it all the time. Uh, when we're uh, recounting some experience that was kind of unusual to say, and get this, then the guy says so-and-so, and then I do this, and the, we still do it. Uh, you are there. And uh, so I, I think that uh, since that really isn't confusing, it ought to be in there. Or sometimes when we have uh, uh, used English words that uh, are probably accurate, but that you could use the Greek word, which has become an English word, uh, like some translations do with preaching the gospel, uh, is, is literally to evangelize. Well, why not say that? Or one of my favorites, where Jesus says... Um, about the rich fool and the fool who uh, built his house on sand. Uh, it's the word fool, but literally it's moros, moron. And so I translate it that way. And uh, so I'm, I'm trying to be literal where it's helpful, but sometimes I don't think even that will convey what's really going on. So I add some words or paraphrase to get the point across, what I think is the point. Like when Jesus uh, says to the disciples, hey, don't shoo those kids away. Uh, th that, uh, these, uh, the kingdom of God consists uh, of, uh, of these. Uh, and I... Uh, figured, is he saying you got to become like a kid to enter the kingdom of God? Well, he does say that various places. But uh, I thought maybe he means, don't you recognize them? These are the very angels of the kingdom of God. That fits with an ancient uh, notion of uh, entertaining angels unaware. So I figured, well, uh, Let's give this thing a fresh look. It, it, that might be the intent, and everybody knows, uh, everybody's read the other ones. Uh, I think I'm going to pick this one. Anyway, uh, I'm currently working my way through Luke and came upon a passage that struck me as odd, don't you know? Luke 8, 1 through 3, and the RSV says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, preaching uh, and 
Uh, where is it? And bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I believe these three verses are unique to Luke, right? Oh, um, Mark, I think, says that, yeah, there were women who, who followed him, but this, uh, this idea that they were patronesses and this particular set of names is unique to Luke. Uh, the rest of the chapter goes on to relate a few of the synoptic greatest hits, the parable of the sore, the lamp in a jar, Jesus' family, calming of the storm, uh, the garrison demoniac and Jairus' daughter. But these first verses are unique. What purpose do you think they serve? Also, I'm not sure if it might be a redactional seam or not, but I find the afterward he went on through cities and villages to be a departure from Luke's earlier near obsession with geography. In Luke, Jesus, if you want to see a guy that's obsessed with geography, read uh, Sean Frayne's uh, book, uh, oh, what the heck is it called? Uh, they all have similar names. Uh, Jesus, the Galilean prophet or something like that. This poor guy uh, is is trying to see how much life of Jesus, theology of Jesus, he can squeeze out of the mere statements that Jesus went to Cincinnati and then he went to Detroit and all that. Well, you know, the uh, what we know about the climate of these places might have made Jesus think of this. Oh, boy, it's pathetic. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, in Luke, Jesus goes to Nahum, then Capernaum. He goes to Nain, etc. Why the sudden vagueness of cities and villages? In the pre-Nicene New Testament, you actually translate it as, and afterward it came about that he toured every city and village. It seems to me that every could be doing a lot of work. Um, let's see here. Every city in Galilee? Every city in Judea? Every city in the world? If every is a correct translation, might we be dealing with the resurrection appearance? I think it's just hyperbole, uh, as with some of these other ones in Mark. You know, he healed everybody that came to him, and, uh, you know, he couldn't uh, take time out to lunch. He was so mobbed, and he had to get into a boat and go offshore because otherwise the huge mob like the, you know, Beatles fans... Elvis worshippers would have crowded him into the water. Uh, all of these generalizing summaries tend to be uh, uh, magnifying and so on. Um, uh, finally, what do you make of the mention of the women traveling with Jesus and the twelve? Many, uh, Mary obviously has her own place in the story as a witness at Jesus' crucifixion, so this earlier mention is odd, but not completely without some merit, though I do feel like Luke burying the, uh, is burying the lead when he mentions the seven demons she had been cured of. Seems like that could have been a good story. 
uh, and and indeed I tell it in uh, my book, The Righteous Rise, my uh, story, The Righteous Rise, uh, uh, how Jesus uh, confronts her in the brothel and casts the demons out and the whole place collapses and so on. I think you're exactly right. This must have been some darn story, right? I mean, rivaling the garrison demoniac. Uh, uh, but what of Joanna and Susanna? I don't believe either is mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels or Acts. Um, I might be wrong. I haven't made it to Acts yet. No, you you are quite right, eh? Uh, I hope you can shed some light on this confounding passage. I love the show and have been listening for many years, but this is my first question. Yeah, Jacob, a uh, good one. Good questions. I think that... Uh, the mention of these women as patronesses who are wealthy and are paying the bills for uh, Jesus and the disciples, seeing to it that food is supplied and lodging and, and so on. Uh, this we, we find women like this in the early church, and they, they later become the ones mentioned in uh, the pastoral epistles as uh, those who have widows in their homes. Well, the widows were, were celibate, charismatic women, interchangeably called widows or virgins, because in either case, the point is they had committed to celibacy. Uh, and uh, they, uh, they were uh, giving a home and provisions to poorer women of the same kind who otherwise would have been starving. And they, they were apparently very important in the church, and that's why the pastoral epistles tend to vilify them rather subtly, but but truly. Uh, I mean, that's what, what he's doing. Uh, he's trying to limit the sphere of their activity, and he casts, casts aspersions on them just being freeloaders and, and heretics and so on. I, I get into this in my favorite of my books, The Widow Traditions in Luke Acts. Uh, and uh, so Luke depicts... Uh, what's her name? Uh, in from Lydia from Thyatira, uh, she gets converted and says, "If you really consider me a, a true convert, then you'll accept my hospitality." And they do, and so on. Uh, and uh, so that, yeah, that, that's who he's talking about. He's providing a, a foundation for this practice within the earthly sojourn of Jesus. Well, that's what you ought to be doing if you can afford it. Uh, it's something similar to the rich young ruler story, uh, where he says, uh, well, if you want to follow me, how about giving up everything you own, cash it in, and give the money to <clears throat> the poor? Who do you think he means by the poor? I kind of think it's him and the Twelve. Uh, anyhow, I don't know that, but I uh, suspect so. And so it's like a piece of fundraising theology. And um, But what about the names? Well, Susanna is a prominent name from uh, the Bible. Ah, what Bible are you reading? Well, the kind with the Apocrypha. Because in the Greek version of Daniel, Susanna is a righteous woman whose uh, who's life... Uh, Daniel saves by proving that accusations against her were false. Um, so that's a Bible name. Uh, you're right, Mary Magdalene's a well-known character, 
anyway, so she's going to be there. What about Susanna? Now, thereby hangs a real tale. And again, I go into this in the widow traditions in Luke Acts. I've mentioned this recently, but I guess it doesn't hurt to beat it to death. Um, we have various stories of these consecrated widows uh, in uh, second century apocryphal acts, the Acts of Paul, the Acts of Thomas, the Acts of John, the Acts of Peter. And every one of them is an encratite work, that is, uh, the, the Christians that preach the celibacy gospel, that this isn't just for a celibate order, but everybody's got to be celibate to undo the, the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, which was to have sex and procreate. Uh, you got to undo that, uh, and that will break down the hierarchical system of the family, so women are no longer uh, enslaved to husbands, and and so on. It was tied in with uh, apocalyptic expectation, vegetarianism, and and so forth. Uh, there were ascetics, and encrateo means to exercise self-control, but implying uh, sexual self-control. Okay. So so in these stories, a, a woman, usually a wealthy woman, uh, hears Paul, John, whoever, preaching the celibacy gospel, and they are stricken on the spot as if they're falling in love with the preacher. And in fact, these things seem to be Christianized versions of uh, contemporary Hellenistic romances where you do have love at first sight uh, episodes like that. But they are convicted on the spot by the need for believing in Jesus Christ and foregoing sexuality. And so they will no longer sleep with their husbands or they break engagements with their fiancés. And uh, naturally, the man uh, with a bedroom door locked against him is pretty steamed about this. And it so happens that just as she is, is an aristocrat, so is he and has the ear of the local ruler, a governor, a king, whatever. Uh, and he goes to him and says, uh, it's kind of embarrassing, uh, your Highness, but uh, there's this charlatan, this uh, magician that's going around breaking up families, uh, alienating wives from their husbands and probably screwing them. Uh, can't you do something about this, old pal? And the uh, the government official says, oh, you bet I can. And so he sends people to arrest Paul or John or Thomas or whoever. And uh, while they're in jail, the women uh, disciples visit him, bring him food and all that. Again, a kind of patroness thing going on there. And it is for home wrecking that uh, the disciple, the apostles get martyred in, in, some of us, in some of these apocryphal acts, uh, like Paul's. Uh, he, he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven and so on. So the apostles have become uh, a Jesus figure in their own right. There's more to it than that even. But what do we hear about uh, Joanna in Luke? She is uh, wealthy because she's a patroness. She is the wife of a Herodian official, right? Uh, Herod Antipas's steward. And uh, we hear that Herod wanted to kill Jesus 
friendly Pharisees tell him about this, you better get out of here because Herod's gunning for you. Uh, and uh, then he, we, uh, when, when uh, only in Luke, he is sent by Pilate to Herod, whose soldiers mock him. Uh, this is in Luke rather than, uh, I mean, this, this occurs in Luke and in Matthew and Mark and John, but Luke has obviously transferred it to this trial before Herod Antipas that nobody else knows anything about, right? And presumably at the end of the, the original story, Herod had him executed, crucified, presumably. Uh, and that's what happened in the Joanna story, and Jesus would then have been raised from the dead and appeared to her. Well, he still does in Luke, because Luke has tried to fuse this celibacy story of Joanna, a Christian heroine, uh, with uh, Mark. And so he wants to uh, use both the Herod trial and execution that he knows from the Joanna story uh, and uh, and the Markan story of the trial before Pilate. So he clumsily has Pilate try to uh, evade the whole thing and send Jesus off to Herod, since it's really in his jurisdiction, and he happens to be in town, uh, and uh, let him bother with it. But after the the beating and the mocking and the trial, surprisingly, Herod Antipas lets Jesus go and sends him back to Pilate. Now, why would he have sent him back to Pilate if he let him go? Well, it's just so we can switch over to Mark now. And uh, why wouldn't Pilate have let him go if he knew Herod had found no uh, nothing incriminating? So it's sloppily done, but Luke has tried to combine both the Joanna story, which did involve a trial and passion of Jesus, just like the other celibacy gospel uh, celibacy stories of women uh, did. Uh, only it, it's the uh, in them it's the apostles' passion and crucifixion. Here it's Jesus's. I'm saying it, it seems obvious to me that that was the original story of Joanna. Uh, Luke found it and uh, he decided to use it, but he made a couple of major changes in it. So uh, there is a real that is really an an island that is the only remaining visible tip of a sunken continent. So, okay, that's, you're probably sorry you asked, Jake. Um, so, so much. Okay. Uh, Elliot Mudd says, uh, uh, my name's Elliot and I'm from Britain and I've been researching the Greek, uh, um, I'm doing Australia, uh, I'm researching the, the Greek of the New Testament. No, I'm doing it again. Uh, let's see, I'm not a student, just a private researcher. There's just something I'm trying to clarify, but there seems to be some disagreement among scholars, which isn't exactly new on this. I have read that Greek scholars recognize that when the plural form is used without a qualifying number, uh, it's to be understood as meaning the maximum plural amount, dual. Um, for example, John A. Bengel said... The plural kairos, times, denotes two times. The plural number is to be taken most strictly. Uh, 
Is this correct? Hence in Revelation 12.14 slash Daniel 7.25 slash 12.7 in the Septuagint, uh, time, times, and half a time means the time, uh, means the times is two times, hence three and a half times in total. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, probably, right? Uh, depending on the passage, you mean, uh, like the, uh, I think it's three and a half years of the reign of the Antichrist before things get real bad, half the tribulation. And if so, is the reason for thinking this based solely on Revelation 11.13? Because I'm trying to figure out what Revelation 11.13 mean, and I don't want to be reasoning in a circle. Let's take a look at the old book of Revelation. Uh, let's see. 11 through 13. You mean uh, all those chapters... Uh, or do you mean, uh, huh, let's look at, uh, Revelation 12, 14 first. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. Yeah, that's probably three and a half years. Uh, then, uh, Eleven, thirteen, and at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Um, I'm not sure what you're asking about that. Uh, Revelation eleven through thirteen. Well, it's interesting that in Revelation 11, 11, it says, After the three and a half days, a breath of life uh, from God entered them, the two witnesses, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Yeah, that's that's where you get the, the um, 7,000 dead and so on. Oh, let me see if there's another one here. And the beast in Revelation 13:5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Um, let's see, is that the same thing? Uh, yeah, that'd be three and a half years. And surely there there are other ones in here. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, this biblical numerology. I'm not quite sure what it means, but it certainly does go back to Daniel with the seven weeks of years and so on. Uh, but I have to do some more thinking on that one. Yeah, thanks, Elliot. Uh, Arjan uh, van de Veer. Veerd, uh, in the Netherlands. I watched many of your Bible shows on YouTube. Oh boy, this is terrible, this accent. Uh, a question which keeps crossing my mind is about the relationship between the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, the visions of the end, and the hostile attitude of Jews toward the Romans during the first century CE, eventually resulting in the first Jewish revolt. Were many Jews inspired by the book of Daniel? Was the book of Daniel a contributor to the Jewish revolt leading to the diaspora? 
even uh, the scattering of, of Jews, is that happened after the 136 uh, Bar Kokhba revolt, but there were already plenty of Jews, about twice the number in the Mediterranean world than in Palestine itself. Uh, but yeah, it, it certainly must have had to do with that, must have fired it, because uh, I think Abba Hillel Silver, in a book called A History of Mes uh, Messianic Speculation in Israel, says, uh, well, what is Jesus, or Mark, actually referring to when he says in chapter one that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the, the gospel of God and saying, uh, the time is at hand, or the I'm sorry, sorry, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. How does he know the time is fulfilled? It's finished. The time's up. And uh, the rabbi says he he thinks it must be based on Daniel because we certainly know various people were calculating the coming end based on Daniel, different readings of it sometimes. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it certainly must have been one of the matches that lit the fuse. Yeah, so sorry to do a terrible attempt at a Dutch accent. I got to watch some more movies with Dutch guys in them. Uh, this is, I think, ooh, oh boy. Let's see. Is I'm not sure. I'm sorry. That was that was Ken Bradley. No, wait a minute. That was oh boy. Chase, I'm I'm. Uh, uh, well, maybe this is Ken's. Okay, sorry. I was hoping you could speak to the changing of the tax collector's name from Levi, son of Alphaeus, to Matthew. I read recently that Origen says it was actually James, son of Alphaeus. Was the writer of Matthew making another change to Mark due to Mark's lack of knowledge of Judaism? Well, I don't think that would have uh, caused this. Um, you notice that it never says uh, either in Matthew or Mark or any place else, that he this guy was Levi, also called Matthew, doesn't say that when he called Levi the tax collector, the toll collector, uh, to leave his booth and follow uh, Jesus. He doesn't say, uh, "You are Levi, and I'm going to call you Matthew." There's nothing like that. Rather, here's what we have. In Mark, we have the calling of Levi, the tax collector, and uh, Jesus is shown having dinner with him and his IRS colleagues, and uh, that causes some controversy, but it's Levi, the tax collector. Then a bit later in Mark, we have the choosing of the twelve, and one of them is named Matthew. Nothing else is said about him, and there is no Levi on that list. But in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus calls the guy at, the, at his tax collecting booth, um, it, it doesn't say Levi, it just says Matthew. The story's identical in every other way, but the name has changed. And then when you get to Matthew's uh, uh, list of the, the 12, uh, we read of Matthew the tax collector. So what seems to be going on here is that Matthew noticed 
uh, why isn't Levi on that list? Because the story of his calling and his dropping everything to follow Jesus, that sounds exactly like the stories in Mark about um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John dropping everything to follow him. Um, this guy sounds like he would have been a disciple. Well, let's assume he was. Uh, who, who could he have been? Well, how about Matthew? Uh, so he's conflated the two characters, uh, which is a huge reason uh, to show that uh, the so-called Matthew who wrote the gospel is certainly not this guy. Right, I, surely he would have known how he became a Christian and not ripped off some other guy's uh, story. Uh, it's rather Matthew is named for a pun. Uh, Matthew's Matthew the evangelist is uh, enamored of the word mathetes, disciple. Uh, and uh, so he, he figured, well, this is a gospel a handbook of Christian teaching for disciples, because in the, in the uh, uh, Great Commission at the end of the book, go out and make disciples of everybody and so on. So anyway, the, the, the disciples gospel. Uh, okay, now I think this is uh, from... Uh, Warren Hicks he says, uh, if you will indulge me, I'll give you a little personal background of that. Of course, that's always welcome on the Bible Geek. Uh, I attended the Church of Christ, the only organization that is actually going to heaven, hallelujah, uh, from birth until I left for college at 18. We went to church three times a week, hallelujah. Uh, your sympathy is greatly accepted. Even as a kid, I had questions, but only received questionable answers. Uh, sounds Socratic. Uh, since my parents lied to me about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, maybe they were lying to me about this ego and egomaniacal old man with bipolar disorder. You're talking about me? Oh, God. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, I am a jealous and vengeful God. I am a loving and forgiving God who does nothing but sit in the clouds all day judging everyone. By the way, I got to recommend a story. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith, one of the great writers of weird tales in the 20s and 30s, wrote this terrific story called Schizoid Creator, in which we find out that uh, God is like a multiple personality. He's God and the devil on alternate days. I'm sure you'd love this story if you can get a hold of it. Anyway, um, Oh, let's see, and how uncool is it for him, God, to command us to constantly thank him for creating us for the sole purpose of having us constantly thanking, thank him for creating us. He loves us, but if we don't thank him correctly, we'll burn in hell for an eternity. And he keeps changing the rules. So it is really, really confusing. I wouldn't want this guy for a roommate, let alone spend an eternity with him. Uh, my dad wouldn't let me grow my hair long as a teenager. Uh, uh, I tried the, but Jesus had long hair angle. Uh, 
He quickly pointed out that it wasn't an actual photo of Jesus, just an artist's rendering, so there's no proof he had long hair. That only raised more questions about proof and faith. I had faith that Jesus did have long hair, I, but I needed proof that he actually uh, proof that he actually existed. Here's my question. One of the main foundations of Christianity, as I understand it, is the fact that God sacrificed his only son for our sins. But how much of a sacrifice was it? Sending your immortal son to live on earth for 1,253 12, uh, days, suffer badly for only one of those days, die, resurrect him on the third day, let him hang out on earth with his buddies for a few more days, and then bounce him straight back to heaven to be at his side again, unharmed. If Jesus had died and stayed dead, that would have been the ultimate sacrifice. What's going on here sounds more like a crappy vacation on earth uh, instead of an actual meaningful sacrifice. Or maybe a mild punishment for a domestic chore violation because Jesus forgot to take out the trash one day. Thirty-three years is less than the blink of an eye in the realm of eternal beings. Jesus suffered for one day on earth. In the two thousand years since he died, not to mention the entire history of mankind even to this day, billions of people have suffered horribly and many for their entire lives. Aren't they suffering more than Jesus did? How was Jesus dying and going back to heaven a sacrifice? Am I missing something obvious? What are the apologetics on God's sacrifice? Well, I think, uh, well, the only one I really know of is that uh, that of uh, Anselm, and, and even this doesn't quite fit, but the fact that Jesus is God as well as man uh, means that uh, the death was a different proposition that, than it would have been if Jesus were a mere man. Uh, the the power uh, of his life that was uh, sacrificed was enough to um, count to pay the debt of the whole stinking human race. And then once he had done that, well, it was back to heaven. Again, still, that doesn't quite... Uh, I mean, that's like donating blood, kind of, right? It's it's hard to see that. I was writing the other day on something, and uh, I, I guess it was uh, one of these books I mentioned before, and I said, you know how it's common for critical scholars to say that the general trend of the gospel narratives is that Jesus... Uh, disciples had no idea what was going to happen to him, so they were totally dumbfounded when it did, when he was arrested and they fled. What the heck's going on here? Uh, despite the fact that earlier in the Gospels, at least three or four times, he had told them explicitly what was going to happen. And then the writers try to cover it up. I said, but they, somehow they didn't understand it. Come on, it couldn't be clearer. Just read the passages. Well, of course, critical scholars today uh, say that, you see, 
what those passages, the passion predictions, they're written for the reader. Uh, Mark doesn't really intend you to think that the disciples heard this. He knows you're going to think that uh, because that's the only way he can get this across. He can't do a voiceover uh, for the, the, the audience that, uh, of course, the characters don't hear. Uh, so what he has to do is to have Jesus say it in their hearing um, and, and then cover it up in this unconvincing way. But in fact, Mark is filled with things like that, where uh, he, he's really talking to the reader, like, take up your cross and follow me. He says this to the crowd. I, what, what could they possibly think he meant? Well, he's not really saying it to the crowd. He's saying it to the readers and so forth. A great, great book on this is Robert M. Fowler, um, reader response criticism and the gospel of Mark. Boy, he really takes away the blindfold on that. So uh, that explains why uh, they're totally shocked. They had no idea it was coming and, and no way of knowing it was going to come. Uh, well, what I thought of was, you know, in the gospels, it, it kind of sounds like Jesus doesn't know what's going to happen. I mean, he seems to know that he's the end is near for him, the Garden of Gethsemane and so on. Uh, but why would he be so upset if he thought he was going to rise from the dead? Uh, I mean, he's, my soul is sorrowful unto death and so on. Why would he be that upset if he knew he was going to rise? And it seems to me to be the same kind of contradiction and that in an earlier version of the story, he didn't know. Uh, and uh, possibly that, that would even imply that neither did the narrator. Uh, could it be possible that originally it was the story of a great sacrifice of an innocent and righteous man? And even that his death atoned for sins, but no resurrection. I mean, we know that Muslims, out of reverence for Jesus, and, and Muslims love Jesus. You know, they say he was the Messiah of Israel. Okay, he wasn't the seal of the prophets like Muhammad, but Jesus was virgin born of, the, of Mary. Uh, he, he never sinned. Uh, he, he was the Messiah. Uh, I mean, they hold Jesus in high esteem. He's going to come back to the second coming, but they can't brook the notion that he died. And they say, look, Jesus prayed that he not have to die. What did God say? Tough luck. You're out, you're out of luck, kid. Uh, if anybody's prayers are going to be heard, isn't it Jesus? Well, originally they were. And Jesus um, was taken up to heaven before he could be arrested. I used to point this out to students of mine saying, you know, see how many Muslims we got. There's over a billion. And that means that there are people in, there are a billion people in the world who, though they love and believe in Jesus, they believe he didn't die on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean they're right. I mean, there's slightly more Christians than Muslims, but you, it does make you think. 
wait a minute, wait a minute, there's this huge alternative group that don't believe what I and my buddies do. Got to make you think. It, it shouldn't be self-evident anymore. You should uh, ask yourself, do I have reason to believe my version more than they do to believe theirs? So I think you're right uh, that the, uh, the resurrection doesn't exactly fit. Uh, there, there are real problems there. Ooh, let's see. Um, do I want to deal? Well, okay. Uh, oh, wait a minute. This is two questions. I think maybe I'll call it quits for tonight uh, and then try to get back to you with another Bible geek uh, sooner this time. Well, thanks for being with me and uh, keep a lookout for those books and uh, other ones of mine that have come out recently uh, would um, include... Uh, Oh, um, what what in the way of religion have I done? Well, I guess more, most recently I have a couple of fiction anthologies. Just take a look at my books on uh, on Amazon.com and uh, see if there's something you like. Um, and uh, and if you want to become a Patreon patron, uh, I and my uh, bill collectors would be real happy at that. Uh, I do receive significant support that that saves our necks quite often, uh, but it would be better, easier to be able to have a more of a of a comfort zone there. If you can, even a buck a month, it'd be handy. Or if you just want to make a donation on PayPal, as some do, that'd be great too. But of course, you know, there is no admission charge for the Bible geek. If you can't, or you're just not inclined to, no problem as far as I'm concerned. I appreciate your interest and the fact that you continue to send me these great questions. So I'll see you with more of them. Uh, and lame answers uh, next time on the next exciting episode of Ye Old Bible Geek. Oh, the high 